0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast, Snail by Snail, brought to you by Slow Food Portland.
1: Chef Aaron Adams' evolution has taken him from fine dining and French food, to taking pate off the menu, to grass-fed beef, but ultimately to vegan and plant-based restaurants, first at Portobello, and now at Farm Spirit. He and his team are creating original and modernist interpretations of Cascadian cuisine, thinking of Cascadia as an alternate universe whose people decided to never eat meat again. I was most impressed by Aaron's insistence on hospitality. In his own words, hospitality trumps everything. I'm Antonella, and this is Snail by Snail. You can sing the little opera if you want to get warmed up. (laughs) So I've been starting these interviews by asking people to reflect on the food culture that they grew up in. Sort of the role that food played in your life growing up.
0: Sure. I I think that it's really funny that people, they, I feel like a lot of people who cook and a lot of people who I know who cook, of my generation, um, I feel like that they, they there's some sort of pretense that they, they grew up in some sort of great, like, mm-hmm. noble food culture, when the reality is is that most of us, of my generation anyway, grew up in a cul-de-sac eating terrible junk food. With, like, punctuated by moments of, like, either, of some sort of cultural nostalgia. Mm-hmm. So, like, my family's from Cuba, right? Oh. Like, the family that I identify with most, my mom's side of the family. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's... You know, these points when you go to, like, Aunt Felicia's house and have, you know, food. Or, like, when my grandma would come and cook or something like that. And those are all really great memories. But to, like, these things I feel like that we are so drawn to, um, especially, you know, so-called locavores who are really drawn to, like, kind of this really Eurocentric view of cooking. Mm -hmm. It's puzzling to me, really, because it's not really rooted in anything. I mean, I think that we should be really proud of our own regional cuisines and celebrate those and kind of, I would think it's, I think it'd be nice if we could just quit being so damn Eurocentric about everything, <laughs> honestly.
1: Because it's, well, it's not only in food, it's sort of throughout, I think oh. food is like the microcosm of the bigger.
0: Yeah, totally. Food and then yeah. the, all the, the complete total aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I think that there's a lot more that we can celebrate, including um, something really um unique. And like, so what we're trying to do at farm spirit is not be so beholden to to all of that. You know, we are a restaurant that's completely based on plants, like Mm -hmm. everything. We don't serve any animal products whatsoever. You can't find anything that comes out of an animal here. So, so right there, we've already are challenging the repertoire. Right. And so then besides that, we also limit ourselves to doing just stuff that's bi-originally expressive. So we have a couple exceptions to that. We're still figuring that out. I'm talking to farmers about, like, the idea of growing sugar beets and us growing our own sugar, mm. which seems highly impractical, but might be a fun experiment. Yeah. It takes, like, 20 pounds of sugar beets to make a pound of sugar. But, like, we want to, like, look at that, and then we want to mm-hmm. examine all these things and say, do we actually need to use sugar? Can we figure out ways that we're are we not using sweeteners, etc., etc., et cetera, so that we can further refine and have a cultural identity of our own, something new. Mm-hmm. so like I don't even know if it's really a cultural identity or whatever but we have some sort of identity that's unique in our own so that our restaurant has something that offer that isn't offered other places mm-hmm. and I think that's much more interesting to me than trying to celebrate like a XYZ version like Northwest version or Southwest version or whatever of some sort of European cuisine that is like doesn't really have a lot to do with us except for our like our somehow desire to be like ultra rooted in that which mm-hmm. I don't know that I don't care about yeah. <laughs> personally.
1: <laughs> or it's not as interesting or as exciting.
0: I just don't care because I'm not European. And mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, and it's not, the, and maybe I should. Or, I don't know. I just think that people, I think that people put a value on those things more than they should. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that, like, why are we importing all of these cheeses and doing all, you know, and all these wines and everything like that? I mean, I guess it's because I don't know I think that I think we're doing it for some of the wrong reasons. I think that people really overvalue those things and they and that they think that that you know these into these um what's the word these luxuries. Mm, mm-hmm. Um and that and that I think that you know I've seen many times where people just um I feel like they get the thrill out of the story more than they do out of the actual product.
1: So for you what do you think is lost in those luxury products?
0: Our uh, original identity? Mhm. I mean, I think that you ever watched Mondovino and watched the old Italian man in the field lamenting the death of food.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Because for that person, what food and wine was, was a communal experience. It was an actual commune that these people would live on, and these people would get grapes, and they did wine, and these people made bread, and these people made this or that and the other, and they brought together. And that's really cool, and it's really appropriate, and and it makes sense. But, like... To, to to discover those things and then like import all of them over to here. It just like, I mean to me it seems to go against kind of like the mission of slow food too. And it's like it's like what about what we're doing here?
1: Yeah, because there's that emphasis on like the local gastronomy, the local culture, mm-hmm. but it's getting transposed so much.
0: We're so happy about that localness that's from far away, yeah. <laughs> and it's just really so it's bizarre to me. And I don't really I don't I don't get. Um, yeah, I like importing the spirit of that. But not importing the products mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that being said we still use some wines that are from international because we have because we also really desire to have natural wines here and and ones that are also vegan so doing that is hard for us and staying completely local without us repeating the same um, producers over and over again right but we're working on it
1: So, I want to circle back to the vegan piece because as I was reading and researching, um, I read that when you were in Florida and you decided to, first you went to grass fed beef and then you decided no animal products, no
0: beef. It's sort of like um, the restaurant never was vegan. Mm -hmm. Um, So, with that restaurant, so what was really interesting to me was I was, you know, well, first of all, I started off trying to do like a mini version of Danielle because I was mm-hmm. like really like <laughs> insane about New French and I was really love uh, Daniel Ballou and I was like, and I, I I just, I had worked in New York, I ate, had eaten there, I uh, kind of worshiped their whole aesthetic mm-hmm. and everything. So I opened up this like totally New French little restaurant in Jacksonville, Florida that was completely unpopular <laughs> 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 because um, it was, at a, I mean, there were several factors. One, I wasn't like connected to that local community. I just opened a restaurant there. Mm. And two, like, um, there was a time when, when people were really upset about the French, you know, in the early 2000s, the beginning yeah. of the war, and people were telling everyone to pour out their bottles of French wine. And I'm like, let me open a French restaurant. Right. And so I was really stubborn and really dumb about it. But besides that, like, I remember I was sitting in a bar one time, and this fella said to me, like, oh, yeah, I like your restaurant, but, you know, it seems like there's a lot of foie gras on the menu. And I was like, really? I'm like, I have it only in like three places on my, mm-hmm. you know, on my menu of ten items, you know? Yeah. And, um, and then I started thinking about it, and I was like, well, you know. And I, and I parroted back all of the industry stuff that had been told to me about foie gras and its production. But then when I started researching it, I realized that, like, those things weren't necessarily true. Mm-hmm. There was a couple, you know, there's a couple lines that people have. So that's where I started off with foie gras. So I was like, okay, well, it is, first of all, not a local product. Unless you're, like, you're like somewhere near Sonoma at the time. Yeah. Or you're, you're near Palmex, or you're near D'Artagnan, which I don't even think D'Artagnan grows them. I think they just sell them. You know, but there's only, like, a couple of places that you were buying foie gras from at the time. At the time, there was Palmex, D'Artagnan, Sonoma, and Hudson Valley. Mm-hmm. And there probably other ones, but those are the only ones that um, I can remember up on my head. Um, and so it's obviously not like you're getting your local foie gras. Right. So that's already a problem. And then B, like... It's a, you know, it's not, it's a factory farm product. Mm -hmm. So that's a problem for me. And then, um, and then, you know, people say like, oh, you know, there's that guy in Spain who like, his, the duck, you know, the geese like, you know, force feed themselves. I'm like, well, that's cool. That's like, if you're like, you know, a mom and you're like, my kid just eats and eats and eats. And so I just throw food and, you know, here's a bunch of candy bars and go, you know, go crazy. You have to be a steward, you know? Mm -hmm. So, like, I I just was, like, questioning all of that and being like, oh, well. So I took it off the menu. That was Mm -hmm. the first thing. Then I started to go to grass-fed meets. And I started also working with the people that were starting Humanely Raised certification out of D.C. I was writing letters to, like, Bill Nyman and being like, how come you're not, you know, certified Humanely Raised and having, like, conversations with him and, like, just really trying to get involved in that. And so then I started taking off bits and bits. And I remember one of the things that really was striking to me in the midst of that is one of my meat purveyors came by, and with a sample for uh, baby veal chops, and that was what really struck me. It was like really weird and, not, and really devious to me. It was I'm like, well, all, veal's already a baby, right? Yeah. But and you know, you've seen a veal a veal chop is like, I don't know. It's like you know, it's a, it's a good size little, you know, steak. You know, mm-hmm. on on and it's uh, when that thing came, it was like the size of like a New Zealand lamb rack, and I was like, huh. Like it was, and so I asked the guys, like, was this a stillborn calf, or was it like, or did you guys pull it out while it's still fetal? Yeah, you know. And I was just like disgusted by it. Plus, it was like sitting in this bucket, and it was like really like this lightest, lightest like whitish pink, and just really you know, like sitting in some fetid water, you know. Like mm-hmm. it was just like it was this uh, right. disturbing scene. So I was just like, yeah, I don't really like this. And so then I started to kind of examine all of it, and then and then there was this point when I got to. Uh, take my cooks to a slaughterhouse because I was like, let's go look and see how animals die so that you stop Burning their meat because you're like burning steaks and overcooking stuff and ruining stuff and We're throwing it out and these animals are dying for us. Yeah So then when I went to the slaughterhouse, I realized they weren't dying for us mm. They're just dying mm-hmm. and So any idea that people have or I started to get the idea is like, you know, you can say like, you know I, have re- I really have respect for, you know, the, for these animals. They don't give a shit about your respect. They're just alive, and they're trying to live, and they're struggling as you're trying to kill them. So that really hit me hard. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh, I just don't want to be part of this. Yeah. So at the end of the day, after I've, like, kind of gone through it and I've been vegan now for, like, 11 years, Mm -hmm. I just, like, think about it, and I'm like, look, I don't have a problem with killing, per se. I understand that this is something that happens in the world. I'm not unrealistic about it. Like, you know, I'm not, like, bummed on someone living in the Antarctic who's, like, or in the Arctic, rather, and, like, you know, hunting for subsistence and stuff like that. Like, I'm not trying to, like... But, like, us people who are sitting here in the city wearing, like, clothes that we bought off a rack and, like, taking taxi cabs to places and stuff like that, like, I we just have been able to be fortunate enough to live in a place where we can have the ability to be more compassionate and to make choices that are not um, so life and death. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, because we don't consider that, that we've, like, built up, like... The most devious mechanized abattoir in the history of humankind that that you know it's killing in hundreds per hour and also damaging to the workforce the human workforce so and it's an environmental disaster so i just can't have and no, no one's ever given me a good reason why we should continue doing it mm-hmm. and so then people are like well let's do this alternative thing and i say why don't we just like give it all a break and stop force breeding aka raping animals and like um continuing to to create this like this product that we are that's heavily subsidized and putting out there me get rid of that first and then have a conversation Mm -hmm. about about sustainably raised and all this kind of stuff because i'm just like so sick of it i just can't even like it's too big just like get rid of it it's terrible but i mean is that gonna happen i don't know i know it's happening slowly so far as that the number of people who are are identifying as vegan is slowly rising Mm -hmm. but still it's not like i mean what are we like percent of the population yeah
1: it's still really small yeah so at that point when you decided to switch over to plant-based did you feel like your career cooking professionally had come to a halt yes. or
0: yeah I quit cooking
1: so what gave you the idea what sort of sparked the belief that um, portobello would exist and then farm spirit could exist well like how happened. did that transition of like hey maybe I could pull this off and re-enter
0: well what happened was I had quit cooking and I started working as a bicycle mechanic or I tried to be a bicycle mechanic. More more accurately, I was a bicycle assembler for bike gallery here in town and you know, not a very good mechanic, but um I got um I got really into bicycles and bicycling. I started bike racing um really poorly also, but I was having a really fun time. And then um I started working as a machinist at this place called well Again, a bad machinist. But I was like working as as an amateur, as like a newbie machinist, like slash fabricator. You know, nothing innovative, but basically nothing that I was innovating. But basically, like just doing what I was told for my boss Mm -hmm. at this place, Efficient Bella Tools. And that guy's like amazing, badass. But like. You know working with him, I was like I was really seeing the parallels between those two types of shops where you like you end up with an end product and it's made out of these things and like this and, that. and I was like so I was still kind of doing the same thing I was realizing, oh cooking's not that unique it's like mm-hmm. just another form of like small manufacturing and um so I was still kind of in it in a weird way, and then I was doing dinners on the side for animal rights causes, uh raising money and doing also just doing dinners like pop ups and stuff like ten years ago. So I was doing like these, or maybe nine years ago, like doing these pop-ups at like juniors and mm. like, and then the Red and Black Cafe. And the Red and Black Cafe was a, it's now closed when it was, it was on Division Street and then it opened up on Oak Street. It was a uh, anarchist, um, collectively run cafe. And um, anarchist in the closest sense in the Red and Black. So I... um was involved with them and was really interested in their politics and really interested in the collectivism and really interested in cooperation, and so I was um, working with them and um, doing doing like pop ups and stuff like that and doing dinners and fundraisers for the for the red and black and stuff, and then um, uh, when they went to go reopen, they asked to, my friend and said you should apply, mm-hmm. so I applied and they hired me and so I went to go start working for them. And it was not a good fit because mm-hmm. it wasn't any kind of food I wanted to do, and they were they didn't have a real emphasis on on cooking or customer service, and those are things that I'm passionate about. Yeah. So it was I felt so, but I felt but I they are really good people that just like didn't have the same values for me on some things. So, um, and I think I aggravated the hell out of them too. So I and but I met um, Denae Horn there who became we became partners, and then we decided that we would try to open up. Uh, Portobello, so Portobello was mostly Danae's idea. So far as the name, I was like, I was like saying like, hey, let's like open up something that's kind of really accessible, Mm -hmm. and we we decided together to do something that was like Italian esque because it would be something that people get their heads around. They would be like, oh, I know what lasagna is, you know, whatever, right? And like, and so we could do and seeing how Italian is such like a, it's almost like nonsense to say something's Italian food, right? Right. That we. We were just like, cool, we can do everything that's kind of like from southern to northern Italy. That's things that are like straight up like North African to Greek to like <laughs> Eastern European, you know, Swiss, German, whatever. All these things that are like found in Italy and we can do all this kind of stuff and it'll be under this one banner. And, and, but like really have the emphasis on the local. So we were doing that for, a, a, you know, a while. And it was, you know, it's it's still doing its thing. So, but I, I, you know, Danae and I um, uh, parted ways, and then we we parted ways in the business about a year later. I sold her my half, and then I kind of just sat there and figured out what I was going to do. And I reflected on on everything. I it was my that was my it was my second restaurant, and I looked at both of those restaurants. I said, What did I do wrong? Mm-hmm. And what don't I like about working in restaurants? Mm-hmm. And I eliminated all that and to open up this place.
1: Yeah. Which I think brings us to this idea of fair, which, mm. you know, just reading and researching, it seems like it's something that really is core. Mm-hmm. And when you open this place, you really turn that traditional restaurant model on its head. And mm-hmm. theres I wonder if you could highlight sort of the things that you didn't like, that you said, we're going to do things
0: way differently. Well, I don't like tipping. Mm-hmm. I think the tipping model is ridiculous. I think it's a weird dynamic. I think that it's like, it's, it gives this weird... um Power to the to the to the um, customer to to like hire your staff mm-hmm. and they're like they're not your employees they're my employees yeah and like and I, and we have our standards and and they're not yours so like you don't get to hire them to be your friend for the night which creates this weird dynamic of like if they if the if the, especially when it's female servers and especially when it's men uh, customers there's just this unusual dynamic that's really uncomfortable to me yeah which is um. I mean, basically, they, you know, the, these men think that they're going to curry favor by, by tipping better, tip. yeah, and that if you don't perform well, then they're going to punish you. And I'm mm-hmm. like, no, that's not the. I don't want that relationship anymore.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. Secondly, I wanted to eliminate the front of the house, not because I think that servers are inv- are terrible or anything, but because for the budget and the size of the restaurant that we're serving, I just can't. afford to have people who aren't um, in it 100%. And unfortunately, it, it seems like, I mean, I'll tell you, there's a, there's a problem enough of finding good people in the kitchen because there's less and less passionate people coming into our industry for very good reason. One, that doesn't get remunerated appropriately. Right. And the work is incredibly hard. And we like ask people to just have passion as if passion will also pay your rent. Right. But um but you don't find that passion stuff like that in, in the front of the house as much anymore. Even less so than in the back of the house. Mm-hmm. You know, people are like, "Well, actually, I'm a, you know, I'm going to school for X, Y, or Z, or I'm an actor, or I'm a, a midwife, really, or whatever." And that's super cool and everything like that. I just don't want to work with you. You know, I want to work with people that are like, "I want to be a sommelier, or I love to serve, or I love to cook, or whatever." Like they're doing what they want to do, and that's I mean, that's a privilege. And I and I recognize that, and that's like not not everybody can do that. People have like have to have jobs, and they have things to pay for. And there's tons of jobs out there. Mine is if I I, if I said that if I was like like a huge um, employer, I would feel weird about it. But I'm not Lee Iacocca over here, and Mm -hmm. this is not GM. We're a small restaurant that employs like three to four people. Yeah. So I can't. I feel like that I'm not making a huge impact by like. But the mean on the other hand, we are feel like we're making a huge impact on these individual people who are living here. Or rather, who are working here? Because we have these folks that are making oh, above the the normal wages for cook in this town. Yeah, I mean, you know, literally like ten thousand dollars more a year. Wow. Uh-huh. You know, so like that's important to me, and and I want that number to be higher, right? Yeah. I want my people who work here to be treated like professionals and be paid as such, and so I, I expect that relationship from our customers, and I and I expect you know that my my staff comports themselves as such and that they get paid like a yeah, it's ridiculous. And I and I learned that lesson really hard from from the machine shop because my letting cooks be like coming in the coming in the work drunk or or coming in work like messy or you know or dirty or whatever, like you have to be you have to be professional. So so I'm trying to attract those people who are on the same mission and I think I have
1: yeah, and you're almost asking it from both ends, from your customer as well as from your staff. Yeah, that I mean, that relationship goes both ways.
0: Absolutely. I think, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're, we're having an exchange here. And we, I, I don't ask anything of my customers other than respect, because, I mean, I think that all, all we want to do is give them something. Yeah. So yeah. when we come in, we want to show them respect. We want to show them love. We want to make them feel great. Like that's our that's our main mission here. It isn't for our, our edification. Our, mm-hmm. our edification comes from doing a good job of making these people feel great. But if you're rude or you're if if you're if you're rude to my, my staff, I'm gonna tell you to leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. We're not gonna put up with people. And luckily we haven't had that happen once here. And I it's think almost it's, like
1: you've set up the boundaries for that not to happen. I think there's a lot of Gray zone in a traditional
0: yeah. model, where
1: maybe you have employees that that's not their priority. They're like, "Oh, I just need to get by while I get this other job." And mm-hmm. there's that weird dynamic between server and those being served. But you've just set up, I think, to make really clear what those relationships are like.
0: And I think that we, at the beginning of each service, we mm-hmm. really set the tone yeah. with our with our guests, and we say, like, you know, like we're serving you, and when i say when i'm bringing a course up i'm going to require you guys to like settle down for a second and listen to me mm-hmm. and we do it in a really nice and respectful way but right. we but we set those tones i mean i've only i've only had to tell someone to be quiet like once mm-hmm. and that was a bummer for me you know I'm yeah. like, can you please be quiet while i'm like trying to it's really hard for me to explain a course while you're just talking the whole time right in front of me and some people get it and some people don't and some people don't know what they're walking into either when they come in the farm spirit they think I've had people who are trying to have a business meeting pull blueprints out, you know, and I'm like, eh, it doesn't really work here. Right,
1: not, not quite the setup.
0: Yeah, so yeah. we've had, we've, you know, but I think that as our reputation grows and people have more of an understanding about what we're doing here, that it's, it's, um, it's, that's changing.
1: To learn more about Slow Food Portland, get updates on events, new podcast episodes, and blog posts, join our newsletter at slowfoodportland.com. What's exciting to you in this Cascadia cuisine? Because even that term I think is a little bit new for people that not everyone's around like oh cascadia cuisine yeah um what what was exciting for you around that idea
0: i think that the idea of limiting mm-hmm. uh what we were traditionally using so like we're making these steps we're like okay guys like i will like we opened up with all like doing all these things all or using all these products right and i remember just being like one day i'm like guys we're not using almonds anymore this is the last almond we're using we're done with almonds yeah and then we're like, okay, well, what do we do? Like, well, we're going to figure out how to use hazelnuts and sunflower seeds and walnuts and stuff like that in the same way. And it's adjustment. You mm-hmm. know, adjust recipes stuff like that. And then I was like one day like, hey, guys, we're not using lemons or any citrus anymore. It's all off the menu. Lemons are gone. And they're like, oh, like, well, we're going to use vergie, and We'll use vinegar. And we'll do the to acidulate everything. So it's just like it, it, re- it really informs what our repertoire is by that limitation. Mm-hmm. And so, so furthermore, we're like, now we're like talking. Now we're having talks about sugar, like I said, yeah, and spices. So now I'm like talking to my guy, my farmers, and be like, "Hey, what well, can you grow for us? Can you grow pepper for us? Mm-hmm. Can you grow whatever?" And then, then, the, then the conversation continues on further. Like, okay, we can grow this stuff in this climate, but should we? Mm. And then we're like, maybe we need to talk about what's really from here. And the the thing is, is like most of the cultivated stuff that's here is European or Asian cultivar that does well. And then there's, like, some indigenous stuff, like, you know, berries and whatnot. But there's, like, a lot, lot of the indigenous foods, besides wild stuff that we forage, which half the time is actually, like, invasive, is not um, not being cultivated. Mm-hmm. Like, on a very small scale, you're going to find Wapato or Camus. But those are usually foraged. Yeah. You know? And then, and then there's the problem of, like, of being really trying to be culturally sensitive and not, like, appropriating. Also, we're not going to be trying to do... Native American cuisine, because that would be disrespectful, mm-hmm. you know, without having that background in, in it, you know. If, um, so we want to be sure that we're being culturally sensitive, and at the same time, so the way that we so that well, let's just say it this way: the way that we describe it is that we say that we're creating like our like a um, alternate universe science fiction cuisine, mm-hmm. where there's like this place called Cascadia that have these people that just decided never to eat animal products or never occurred to them to it. And so then they created this product. So then we think about this rooted traditional Cascadian cuisine, and then we think about all the influence from the influx of people coming from, like, Asia and from Europe and from all these other places, and then, like, what that influence looked like, and then we can comp- we comp- make new traditional cuisine, and then we think about modernist interpretations of all those things. Yeah. So it's kind of an unusual creative process. but.
1: And is it driven was it mostly driven by the creative process? Cause I guess I've been having a hard time, like even formulating this question in my mind, but I feel like the food conversation is really loud. Like I come it from it from a nutrition standpoint and it's loud. Everyone's this diet, that diet, what's better? Paleo, vegan, this, that, um, that I think when all that settles, like is it a creative drive? Is it a political drive? Is it an activist drive? It's a creative
0: drive. So it's a creative drive coming from somebody who is politically active. Mm,
1: okay.
0: So I don't, I'm not politicizing this, this workspace. Mm. Like if people ask me a, a question,
1: yeah.
0: if you pointedly ask me why am I vegan, I'll say for, for ethical reasons. Mm-hmm. If you say what ethics, then I'll say for animal rights. If you push me further, then I'll open up to you and talk about all yeah. sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah but i don't think it's necessarily appropriate for me to like educate my guests at dinner time when they're here just to have a pleasurable time. Mm-hmm. and so i'm not handing out pamphlets to anybody. but if they ask me i'll talk to them about it and sometimes it gets weird, but it's yeah. um it has but usually just like after work, like i try not to do that in front of other guests, mm-hmm. but it's happened a couple of times and it's uh, not my favorite thing. Um, but it's also totally cool if everyone else is comfortable with it, if anyone i don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable. It's just like hospitality trumps everything.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, for me at this venue. Mm-hmm. There's room for all of this. Here, this is what we're doing. So I'm not. I'm like totally into my friend's AR activism and stuff like that. I don't consider what we do to be animal rights activism. Mm-hmm. I consider ourselves a local war restaurant who happens to be run by people who are um, vegans for ethical reasons. Yeah. So... Um, So, but the drive is totally creative. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think it's just interesting to know that, to like have set that such a clear intention because I think there's so many different voices saying like, listen to me or do this or do this or this is wrong or pitting things against each other. I
0: think that when it comes to like diet,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. that there's a million different ways that people can eat. I think you can be totally healthy and eat meat. Yeah. I think you can be totally healthy and be vegan. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that it's clear to say that the animals will be healthier if you don't eat them. Right. Yeah. So like for me, it's like not about diet. Mm-hmm. It's not about health. It's not about trying to like push like a, a, a diet agenda or anything on anybody. I think that the things that we need to address, like that are interesting to me are like, yeah, it's an environmental disaster. Yeah, for sure. The amount of meat consumption is an environmental disaster. And then the amount of agriculture, which is also devastating, you know, to, that we have to have in order just to feed that animal agriculture. Mm-hmm. So it's just a total mess and we have to do something about it. Like yes. for Christ's sakes. Yes. <laughs> so like that's something that needs to happen. And and meanwhile, everyone's like, like fetishizing all this like European charcuterie and like pig roast and, and eating like no European ever does. Like just yeah. like eating like a, a steak that somebody would consider a roast, mm-hmm. you know, or something like that. Just like insane. Yeah. Um, so there, there's, there's that, and then there's, um, you know, yeah, like, I think it's morally reprehensible to create a mechanized abattoir. And, uh, yeah, it's terrible. So, like, there's that. Um, So, but, but, like, our mission statement is on the wall there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, basically, it just says, you know, like, you know, we want to, like, balance ethics, dietetics, and aesthetics.
1: Yeah.
0: And um, so that's our main goal. And so, in a, in a weird way, what we hope is that people can come in here and that, and I'm not saying that we are there yet, but like eventually as we get our stuff together and we get our repertoire totally tight and we get our restaurant more organized and we get better at our jobs, mm-hmm. that people won't be able to ignore us and that they'll be like, oh yeah, this is like a, a quality place. It really is good. And it's really possible to do this to totally plant-based. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and it's not missing anything. It's an entirely different thing. We're not beholden to omnivorous cuisine. We're not doing a version of some sort of omnivorous cuisine. We're doing our own thing, and when you come to our place, it's going to be a different experience, and the textures and the, and the flavors are going to be different.
1: It just seems like such a wonderful working place to be able to really know that you're original, that this is your vision through and through, and you're like welcoming and wrapping your arms around people, like,
0: hey, let's share this yeah. in community and awesome. not trying to be anybody else. It gets emotional sometimes. I mean, of there's course. There's been many nights when it's been really clicking and the people have been so awesome. Yeah. And they're everyone is so like appreciative cuz I have to say like like the ticketed service is awesome because it's kind of like an asshole gate. Yeah. Like if you are just like, "Oh, I don't want to do this. This ticket is stupid." You know, cool, then don't come in and, and you're, they're
1: going to self-filter.
0: Yeah. So, <laughs> bye. But the people who have been, like, who have and who have been adventurous and have been curious and they're interesting, they tend to be these amazing, awesome people who come in and they're so thankful and so sweet. And, you know, and I think that when they get to see the amount of work that goes into it, when it's not just like a plate, but it's just like, oh, I see the building blocks of that plate. And, oh, my God, like, they had to make each one of those little things. Mm -hmm. And then they have the conversations with us. Because one thing that we do kind of talk about, like, politically in the restaurant is social justice and and the fact that that, that cheap food equals exploitation. Yeah, and so we talk about like how much our farmers make a year. I have a farmer friend who told me she made twelve thousand dollars last year. You know, and then like we, how much like the average cook in this town makes, mm-hmm. like twenty one to twenty four thousand dollars a year to work their asses off to work in the fine dining restaurant because they're fueled by passion. It's like ridiculous. Yeah. While the front of the house are like making like thirty to forty dollars an hour, and you know, and then the, they were not we're not supposed to have that conversation because that's insensitive. It's just ridiculous. Like, mm-hmm. So it's like, the cheaper your food is, the more exploitation is involved in it, generally. And you know what? Some people can't help it. Some people are in a disadvantaged situation where they can't, like, shop local and eat stuff in the farmer's market and whatever. And I totally get that. Um, though people should know that if they use uh, an EBT card in local farmer's markets that they get for every... If they spend $10 on coins, they get $20 in coins back. Yes. Just thought that would be cool to say. Yes. But... Um, Like, if people, but people don't have access to go to the farmer's market if they, like, don't have somebody to, like, watch their kids or, like, they can't, you know, whatever. There's certain, or they're working too much or whatever. So, no judgment about that at all. Like, I'm not trying to say that. But if you do have the means to and you have the ability to, then, like, do it. And then share also. Go buy some food for somebody who can't then. Or take your friend out who can't afford to go out to dinner in a nice place and take care of them we used to try to subsidize a couple people every week here who, oh, who are friends of ours or whatever and be like, yeah, you know, these people who make more money than you can, like, comment.
1: Yes. <laughs> so when people, they're finally at the bar, they're sitting down, they're having dinner, what do you hope the
0: restaurant inspires in them? What do you hope they leave with? I guess, like, more than anything, I want them to... I want them to be inspired to, like, invite friends over to their house. Mm. I want them to see that, they, you know, that the power of hospitality I think that's I've always been really attracted to dinner parties and to hospitality my mom used to always put on these really great dinner parties and I always admired her for it and then I would I would try when I was a kid I'd put on little dinner parties for my <laughs> friends and bring them over and like make like this, some stuff I was like oh I've grilled polenta and some roast eggplant and like roasted peppers and, and you know and I'd make these platters and like have friends over and we yeah. you know like sixth grade and stuff and you know and, and I just love bringing people into your place, offering them like first thing you have to do is offer them something to drink, yes, and then offer them something to eat, you know. And like I just love that, and I think that if we're circling back to your first question about about like nostalgia or like um, cult your your roots or whatever food, you know, coming from a, uh, from a Cuban family, um, there is a sense of that. Like going, to, I remember just going over to my aunt Chacho's house or Felicia. That was really Felicia, we call it <laughs> When you go to Chacho's house like he was just like whatever you want you know she like she'd fry it up for you real quick yeah. and, and then when I lived in Guam um the folks there were ridiculously hospitable uh-huh. the Chamaru folks there were like you go to their house and they're like hey you want some like you want a Budweiser you're like and I'm like oh no thank you and like oh don't be ashamed have a Budweiser <laughs> and I'm like okay do you want some fried intestines and red rice? I'm like, oh, no, no, thank you. Don't be ashamed. I'm like, oh, okay. you know. <laughs> and then like, right, have at yeah. it. And yeah, and so, like, that was, like, um, but just, like, seeing how they were like that, like, it was, that's what I want people to feel like. It's like, like, here's this bounty. Like, we just want to give to you, give to you, give to you. And then, like, there's another, and, you know, so that's why we have a lot of surprises in, mm-hmm. the, in the dinner, you know, like, stuff that's off menu. And oh, like, I love that. You know, at the end of the meal, like, you get a little gift to take home and stuff like that. So, like, just want people to feel, like, really cared for. Yeah. So I want them to be inspired to go and do that for somebody else more than anything else. And if they can do it without, you know, if we could just, like, if, if, like, on a personal note, if, like, if they could just figure out how to do that and, and do a little less harm, that would be really cool. That would be really, that would would feel really, really good.
1: What does good, clean, fair mean to you?
0: Good, clean, fair? Do I get to pick the context or?
1: Well, so I can give you a little context and you're free to choose. Um, So this is like the tagline for slow food. Mm -hmm. And I think part of my motivation in doing this podcast had been, you know, these are big words. They could really mean anything um like what it's like trying to get to the definition like I've been trying to figure out what does good clean fair but there's people who are living and working this on the ground every day so
0: I mean it sounds like good clean fun to me you know and like so is it a, is it a play on that or is it like good period clean period fair period it's like
1: good period clean period fair period like that slow food is fighting for good clean fair food but I think what that means could be so different for each person. I mean, obviously,
0: experience. I think that my my definition is a little different than slow foods.
1: Well, then I think we need to hear
0: it. I, I think that slow food needs to examine some of the things that it thinks is fair. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that slow food needs to take a look at animal welfare a little bit closer. I think that they think that, I think that they think they are, and I and I appreciate that.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. Maybe I should say it this way. I think that people should take a little bit closer at animal welfare mm-hmm. and that people should examine uh, what fair means. Um, when you're talking about fairness, I wonder if you would think it would, it's fair when you look at like the life of um, some of a, of a pig that you think is like living well. So, if you have an animal who's sentient, who um, gets upset, uh, who gets delighted, who has preferences for different types of food or people, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and then you say, hey, you're going to stay here, and you're not going to leave here, and you're going to be confined by these walls, and when I'm ready, not when you're ready, when I'm ready. To kill you. Then you're going to be dead. And to me that just seems really unusual. It seems like a different relationship than a wild boar running through the woods. Who like is looking to go kill something. Or root Mm -hmm. something up and then suddenly gets an arrow in its head. It seems a little bit different. That seems a little more fair. Mm -hmm. Or hunting something that could kill you back. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So like um, that seems fair um does does force inseminating an animal in a enclosure that it'll never leave its entire life fair not not by a long shot so uh no i'm not so i'm not so i think that's something that we need to examine um our relationship to animals our relationship to the workers i think that we fetishize uh, the work of chefs, and I think that we fetishize the work of farmers. Um, we have all these great documentaries, like about Jiro, Dreams of mm-hmm. Sushi, and like how amazing his life is. And I'm like, this is this person's life who's spending every minute of his life in this box, and with his son, with his son. Yeah. Like, and it's like it's a maybe an amazing story, but on the flip side, maybe it's really sad and hard. You know, and I'm like, whoa, you know, like, like for me as a cook who actually like works like 60, 70 hours a week in my kitchen, like sometimes I look at that and I'm just like, you guys are really psyched about me not having a personal life or like you're really psyched about the fact that I can't ever seem to date anybody. You know what I mean? Like, cause I'm here all the time, you know, yeah. um, or that, you know, like, like that's really cool, but this is my real life
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I really have to like. I'm going to, like, what am I going to, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, so I think that we need to examine the way that we fetishize that. Mm-hmm. And that we need to value food more. And we need to start paying for a fair price for food. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where that's where I got attracted to Slow Food. Those are the parts of the mission that I got attracted to Slow Food and why I joined Slow Food USA. Yeah.
1: yeah. All right, well, thank you, Erin. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah.